This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. How many times have we had a patient we presumed was doing well, and we found the serum creatinine to be slightly elevated? Or a urinalysis where there were a few red blood cells present? Common problems we encounter, and most often they don't represent anything serious, but they could. Helping to sort out these common problems is Dr. Suzanne Norby, an internist and nephrologist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Daryl. Let's start by talking about the creatinine and what we've used it for measuring renal function, but what exactly is it and where does it come from? That's a great question. So creatinine is a breakdown product of muscle that everyone's body produces and it's eliminated by the kidney. So when we see the blood level of creatinine increasing, we know that the kidney is not doing its job. Is the creatinine a reasonably good test in assessing renal function? It's actually not very sensitive because you can lose a lot of kidney function before the creatinine increases significantly. In what situations would that take place? Often it's in patients with lower muscle mass, so they don't have as much muscle that would produce the creatinine waste product. That's why we have the concept of the estimated GFR that most labs calculate. Okay. So a patient, maybe a very thin, frail, female, elderly patient, uh, it may not be accurate. And that may be the age group that you really want to assess the renal function. Exactly. So in that case, the creatinine could really underestimate the degree of renal insufficiency. Right. And so that's why the estimated GFR was developed. There are formulas that take into account a patient's sex, age, and race, either African-American or not African-American, in order to determine what the estimated GFR is, because you will see a change in that before you will see a change in creatinine, or you'll see a more significant change in the estimated GFR before the creatinine might raise alarm bells. Okay. All right. We've also used the uh, blood urea nitrogen, or BUN. How does that compare with the creatinine? The BUN is more of a protein waste product, and that can be influenced by other things besides kidney function. For example, uh, steroids can cause an increase in BUN, or GI bleeding can cause an increase in BUN, not necessarily related to the kidney function. Okay. There's another marker called cystatin C. Have you heard of that one? That one I have not heard of. So cystatin C is a protein that's produced by all of the cells in the body, and it's not affected by race, gender, age, protein intake, or muscle mass. And so that's another marker we can check and use in the estimating GFR formulas to give us a non-creatinine-based way to look at kidney function. Is this test easily available? Do most uh, labs have the capability of uh, running that test? I think most labs would, or it can be sent to a reference lab. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so let's say we have a patient and we get their labs back and they have a somewhat unexpected rise in the serum creatinine. What steps do we take to evaluate that? I think the first thing might be to repeat the creatinine, make sure there wasn't a lab error, and then take a good history from the patient to see if they have had any changes in medications or other factors that might cause the creatinine to increase. And if you find that this is something that is persistent and real, then you'd want to evaluate further with a urinalysis and consider renal imaging such as an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. I know one problem that 
I see often in terms of resulting in a slightly elevated creatinine is the fact that we tell our patients to avoid eating and drinking after their evening meal. And if they were a little bit low on fluids that day and they haven't had anything to drink, they come in a little bit on the dry side and that can elevate their creatinine. The first thing I do is I have them recheck in a well-hydrated state and very often it comes back down to normal. Right. And there are certain medications that can predispose patients to having that increasing creatinine when they get a little dry, such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin II receptor blockers. Okay. Those all can do that. What else should we look for that can indicate a patient having kidney disease? The urinalysis is really important to look for any evidence of proteinuria or abnormal cells in the urine. Microalbuminuria is another marker of kidney disease. And also, uh, renal imaging is important if you find somebody with an elevated creatinine to look at the kidneys and make sure there isn't any evidence of obstruction or structural abnormalities. Some patients have a solitary kidney. You never know it. Some people can have polycystic kidney disease, which is a very common uh, genetic disorder that affects the kidneys and those such things. We don't pick up unless we actually go looking. Okay. Now, we use a lot of ACE inhibitors for treating essential hypertension. Is it necessary to check a serum creatinine after we start the ACE inhibitor if their creatinine is normal prior to starting it? I generally recommend that because the creatinine often will go up when you start the ACE inhibitor because of the way it affects the filtration pressure across, across the glomerulus. And in that case, you can get a new baseline with starting the drug. And that way, when you go back and look, if the creatinine increases in the future, you'll know when it was associated with the drug and what could be new and different. Also, some patients who may have renal vascular disease can have a disproportionate increase in the creatinine, and that might make you want to back off and look for further causes of why the creatinine increased more. Mm -hmm. So basically just one recheck that's adequate, and then maybe just assess annually as in the past? Right. So I would check one uh, creatinine and potassium about 7 to 14 days after starting the ACE or ARB, and then go from there if everything is stable. Okay. Again, with the ACE inhibitor or ARBs, are they safe to use in patients who have uh, some degree of renal insufficiency? They're actually the preferred medication to use for hypertension in patients with kidney disease because of the beneficial effects they have on slowing progression of kidney disease, particularly in patients with diabetes or proteinuria. Okay. Let's talk about medications that we should be concerned about in patients that have some degree of renal insufficiency, which ones should we be alert to? I think the big one are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. Those um, reduce also the GFR and can have um, bad effects on the kidneys, can cause hyperkalemia, fluid retention, worsening hypertension. So we advise our patients to stay away from those. Some other medications that you need to adjust for the level of um, GFR are things like uh, metformin that can be used safely down to a GFR of 30, um, gabapentin, and other medications that um, can have effects on the neurologic system and are eliminated by the kidney can really result in some problems. Patients can become somnolent, have um, asterixis, muscle issues when they are taking too much for their level of kidney function. Also, proton pump inhibitors have been associated with um, declines in kidney function, although it's not clear whether they're entirely causative. There's a strong association, and so that's another thing to look at, whether your patients really need to be on a PPI. Mm -hmm. So common medications that we often use in the elderly population. Right.
NP or PA looking to fulfill your 2019 CME and pharmacology credit requirements? We have designed our online inpatient medicine for NPs and PAs course just for you. Learn about treatment pathways from admission to discharge in an interactive case-based format. Visit ce.mayo.edu to get started on your credits now. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Now I've heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, that the antihypertensive effect from hydrochlorothiazide is lost or decreases as one gains some renal insufficiency. Is that is that true? That's true. They end up not being very effective once you get below a GFR of, say, 30 or so. Okay. Good to know. And that's because they need to be filtered at the glomerulus in order to get to the transporters where they work. And as GFR goes down, they become less effective. Mm-hmm. So what degree of renal insufficiency should we determine this patient that needs to go to a nephrologist? That's another great question. So I think it, deter- it depends on um, what else is going on with the patient. So patients who might have stage one or two chronic kidney disease, so fairly normal kidney function, but they may have um, blood in the urine, protein in the urine, family history of kidney disease, or maybe even a rapid decline in their kidney function, would want to be seen by a nephrologist to try to figure out what is the problem and go from there. Patients who have a long-standing history of diabetes and or high blood pressure who have um, advancing chronic kidney disease, stage two, three, four, chronic kidney disease, should be seen by a nephrologist probably around stage 3B or 4 to develop a plan for um, renal replacement therapy should that be happening in the near future, uh, to get education about kidney disease, to learn about ways to slow the progression, and the complications also that can occur at that level of kidney function, such as anemia and um, bone mineral disease associated with chronic kidney disease. In patients, one of the most common types of patients we see is a diabetic with renal impairment. Um, we realize that this is getting progressively worse. Is it wise to have those patients seen early in nephrology, or is there not much you can do until they get more into the advanced stages? I think it's good to have them seen um, early, and by that I mean somewhere in stage three, if you're convinced that there's nothing else going on besides diabetes and hypertension, just to make sure that there is no other cause for their chronic kidney disease. For example, could they have a superimposed glomerular disease? Could they have interstitial nephritis? Could they have some other problem that we would manage differently? And if we don't find that, you can be reassured that managing their risk factors, such as their diabetes and high blood pressure, is the best thing to do. Also, with the complications of anemia and um, the bone mineral disorders, it's good to address those and get on a, a plan really to manage those to avoid further complications. Okay. Well, let's talk about urinalysis now. We commonly order these. They're inexpensive. They give us a fair amount of information, but sometimes they come up with abnormalities and we're not exactly sure what to do with them. Let's talk about microhematuria. When should we evaluate patients with a small number of red blood cells in their urine? So according to recent guidelines, microhematuria should be evaluated when you see more than three red blood cells per high power field. 
And so if your lab does a dipstick urinalysis where you would see blood or hemoglobin on the urinalysis, you'd want to get a urine microscopy to see if there are red cells present. If there aren't red cells present, it could be from a number of factors such as um, urine myoglobin and hemoglobin can also um, cause the dipstick to be positive or certain bacterial reactions and infections can cause that to be positive. So you'd want to confirm with red blood cells under microscopy. If you see more than three per high power field, then you'd want to proceed with an evaluation for microhematuria. And is one urinalysis adequate or do we need more than one to begin this the, the review? Uh, currently, one urinalysis is enough, even in a patient on anticoagulation, unless you suspect something uh, different, such as menstruation or uh, trauma, something of that nature that you think is transient. Okay. So how should we evaluate these patients? What do they need? Well, if there are also white cells on the urinalysis, you'd want to get a urine culture to see if there's an infection, um, checking a creatinine to see if there's any degree of chronic kidney disease or acute rise in creatinine, and then also checking the patient's blood pressure because that's a very important indicator of um, kidney health as well. So once you do uh, those tests and try to uh, stratify whether there is an urgent reason to um, have the patient evaluated or whether this can wait, so urgent indications might be if the blood pressure is high, say 180 systolic over 120, that would be a high blood pressure that would warrant urgent evaluation, perhaps in the emergency department. And then if there was fever and or flank pain, that could indicate potentially an obstruction due to a stone or some other factor that would want to be evaluated by urology sooner. Mm -hmm. If you don't have those things, um, make sure to check a physical exam, the abdominal exam, pelvic, genitalia, prostate, since all of those issues can occur and cause structural causes of bleeding. The preferred evaluation is a CT urogram with a cystoscopy so that you can see the kidneys, the whole urinary tract, and also inside the bladder. If you have a patient with stage four or five chronic kidney disease and don't want to use contrast, then a non-contrast CT and a cystoscopy with retrogrades would be the way to go. Does an ultrasound have any role in the evaluation of microhematuria? Uh, currently, it's not considered a first-line test, but sometimes with a CT scan, you may see a mass in the kidney that they can't quite tell with CT, whether it's cystic or solid, and then in that case, the ultrasound can help you determine that. But it wouldn't be something that you would get first. What are some of the common things we find when we look for microhematuria? Oftentimes, you'll see patients who have um, bladder cancers. If they have some microhematuria, kidney stones are also very common. And in nephrology, we will see a lot of patients who have hematuria and proteinuria because of a glomerular process. But stones and malignancies are the things that you'd kind of want to worry about as something that you would, would treat. If you come up with a negative structural evaluation and a patient doesn't have proteinuria, it would be good to repeat the urinalysis annually and then two to three years later consider whether the structural evaluation should be repeated. I've had some patients where we find microhematuria on their urinalysis and they can't remain in town long enough to get the evaluation done and they send me the evaluation once they get home and they often have a CT urogram but it stops there. Uh, but it really is important to do a cystoscopy to look at the interior of the bladder as well, correct? Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. How about urine cytology? Is that, uh, is that helpful? 
Urine cytology really isn't very sensitive, and so I think a lot of urothelial malignancies can be uh, missed if you're just using urine cytology and not getting the full structural evaluation. Or if you're getting the full structural evaluation, the urine cytology does not add much. In patients who have a known urothelial malignancy, uh, our urologist will monitor urine cytology from time to time, but it's not considered a first-line test any longer, more optional. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is... Your analysis is inexpensive, and I have found a few kidney cancers, bladder cancers uh, from evaluating patients with microhematuria. Is it a good screening test for um, renal or bladder cancer? No, it's actually pretty insensitive. You know, so you can have, uh, especially renal malignancies may not cause hematuria, and you can have have those that are incidentally discovered on imaging or for evaluations from pain in patients who have never had any microhematuria. All right. We have been talking about abnormal renal function and microhematuria with Dr. Suzanne Norby, a physician in the Nephrology and Hypertension Division at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us, Suzanne. Thank you. It's great to be here. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.